Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Alexa Clay. I'm the director of RSA US. I'm really pleased to have the chance to welcome back to the RSA stage our former chief executive, Matthew Taylor. Matthew is now chief executive of the NHS Confederation after 15 years leading the RSA, during which time he developed a special focus on work and its role in society. In 2017, Matthew released the Taylor Review of Modern Working Practices, an independent report on good work commissioned by the UK Prime Minister. So it's fitting that we have Matthew back at the RSA stage today to discuss his latest piece of thinking, Do We Have to Work?, which examines how the meaning, structure, and status of work have changed over time and how it might be reshaped in today's context to become means by which we can live well together. I'm looking forward to speaking with Matthew about all of this in our conversation to come. If those of you are watching along and would like to join the conversation, uh, you can join on Twitter using the hashtag RSA work. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you back at the RSA. How does it feel? It's great to see you, Alexa. And yeah, it's it's strange. I've sat in this room at home, uh, being sitting where you are, uh, chairing so many events. And it's, it's strange not only to be back, but also to be uh, in a role reversal. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's great to see you. Wonderful. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book um, and great to have you here. Wanted to just um, start by teasing out some of the central themes that you raise. It feels like we're in a moment right now where many people are breaking up with work. Um, and, and certainly the pandemic has caused us to all sort of interrogate work and think about it differently. I'm wondering the extent to which um, you know, the, the context of today is shaping how, how you've approached work and how you're seeing it, it really evolve. Yeah, thanks, Alexa. And, and actually, before I start, I think one of the things that I didn't include in the book, which has happened more recently, even though the book was only written a few months ago, was this phenomenon in America in particular, I think, about people dropping out of the labor market. So I've heard a bit about this. You're actually in America. It, it'd be great to, to tell me more about, about this kind of, was it, is it called the great resignation or the great, what's it, there's a, there's a phrase for it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the great resignation, I think, you know, we have unprecedented levels of people dropping out of the workforce, changing jobs, um, people organizing like they've never before in terms of, I think there's always uh, been a left that's supportive of unions, but I think now we're seeing a moment where um, union and bargaining power is just being being changed up dramatically. Um, you know, we have more of a social contract with the state in terms of the benefits that the pandemic has offered um, in terms of federal unemployment. And so I think a lot of people are just interrogating at a very deep level the meaning of work and, and couldn't be more relevant to, to the book you've written. Um, and at the same time, I think in America, we also have such a culture where we are defined by our work. Um, and defined by, you know, the extent to which we're productive members of society. And so, um, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to deprogram around. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. And, and I think in a way that does go to why I wrote the book. I mean, I should say there's a certainly a certain element of opportunism about the book, which is that I've been editing a series for Thames and Hudson called Big Ideas. And they're all kind of rhetorical books. They're short, rhetorical um, uh, and provocative and having ed edited books like, you know, should we all be vegans or uh, um, is gender over or whatever, or democracy finished or whatever it might be. I thought, well, I've been editing these books. Maybe I should write one myself. So 
th that's what I did. And obviously, as, as you kindly said, you know, work is my kind of specialist subject, I guess, although I'm trying to make health my specialist subject now. Um, and I think part of the reason I wanted to write it was does relate to your answer, Alexa, which is there's always a debate about work. And that debate shifts. Um, and so for several years in the kind of first decade of the 20th century, moving into the, the, the a little bit into the second decade, the whole debate was about automation and job loss. And that's all people wanted to talk about. That's what all the conferences were about. That's what all the books were about. Um, and then, you know, you had a kind of flurry of interest in precarious work and the idea of precariarity and that this was the nature of things and the future of the labour market was more and more precarious work. Now you've got this phenomenon, you're talking about this great resignation in, in the UK, when everybody thought we'd emerge from COVID with the big issue being mass unemployment, we've emerged from COVID and the biggest issue is a shortage of labour. So I guess having watched these debates uh, over the years and, and, and feeling that on the one they all one and they all tend to be rather overblown they all tend to sort of lack a certain amount of context and so you know it, it was just a commonplace for several years that that work was likely to to dry up because of robotics and ai and everything and of course we know now that's complete nonsense you know technology has an effect on work but there's absolutely no reason at all why technology will mean there's going to be less work um and then it turns out also that, yes, there has been a growth in certain forms of precarious work, but not in all forms of precarious work. And it isn't quite as we might expect. And some of that precarious work has become less precarious, partly because of labour organisation. So my first feeling was it would be better if we, these conversations had a bit more context. And we didn't get carried away with whatever the, la the latest kind of obsession we have about work is. And then secondly, I wanted to kind of do what I did in my report for Theresa May all those years ago now, which was to bring a value base to it. So in that report, I had lots of recommendations. Some of them have been implemented. Some of them we are still four years later, still waiting for them to be taken forward. But I also brought this concept of good work to play, which was to say, although there are lots of things we should do now, there's a bigger question, which is, are we as a country committed to the idea of work quality as well as work quantity? Because when I was in government, I wish it was a long time ago, um, we're being reminded of this at the moment because there's a big series about the Blair Brown years, in which I have small vignettes, so it's taken me back to my political boss. But when I worked for Blair, when Gordon Brown was Chancellor, nobody talked about quality of work. It was all quantity of work. That was all that mattered. And the idea that we should care about quality of work beyond sort of regulatory issues uh, seemed strange. So I, I wanted to return to that and ask the question, and I'm sure we'll get into this next, but, but okay, if you really did want a good work economy, if you really did want all jobs to have the potential to be good jobs, what, what are the big things that would have to change? You know, we know about whole variety of kind of regulatory interventions, but what, what would be the, the really big challenges to the way organizations work if we wanted good work? And I, I know one of those good work principles that we often talk about at the RSA is around um, subjective nurture or affirming identity. And you know the, the interrelationship between our pursuit of authenticity and self-fashioning and development and work, you know, I find I find really fascinating. Um, can you talk a bit more about that kind of tension in, in the book that you explored? Yeah, so so first of all, I think it's worth asking just what we mean by work um, in the sense that when we talk about work, 
we, I think, still tend to assume we're talking about paid employment. Uh, or we might be talking about self-employment, um, paid self-employment. So we, that's the kind of idea we have. And at the beginning of the book, I, I just invite people to, to stand back a bit and to understand that, that we mean different things uh, by work. Work, uh, fundamentally, the concept of work emerges in the kind of classical world as, as describing the things that we have to do to subsist. It's not about paid employment. It's the stuff that we have to do. And it's it's then generally associated with something that rich and powerful people want to avoid having to do. And that's why they have slaves to do all that stuff that is necessary for subsistence. Then you've got the concept that has grown in the lot since industrialization in particular around kind of paid employment. But then there's also the idea of life's work. So the idea of our, which is often a concept which you can trace back to kind of religious themes, which is to do with work as a sense of vocation, as a sense of how we impact the world, the difference we want to make. And these notions of work, the work that we have to do to subsist, the work that we do to get paid, that instrumental view, and the kind of work which is our life's work often get overlap with each other and it's important I think to, to distinguish them so you know even if we did have a world which we're not going to have by the way where there was no paid employment we still have to do work because we'd still have to do the things that are necessary for us to to uh, to subsist so your, your question takes us to this third idea of work I think which is work as a kind of idea of fulfillment of how we express our ourselves um, and I think that that's right. I think that's an important ideal. Um, and I think that, you know, the fundamental kind of question here is, you know, we spend a, a huge, you know, a third of our adult life in work. Wouldn't we want it to be part of who we are as human beings? Wouldn't we want it to be a place of self-expression? Isn't it a rather pessimistic and sad place to be that so many people don't see work uh, uh, in those terms? So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that. That's a kind of core question of this. Now, I would want to say something else here, which is, whilst I think that is the ideal, and I think that work, the research that we know about what comprises good work, that sense of meaning and also notions of autonomy and growth, are all part of that. We do also need to recognise that people work for different reasons and at different points of their life, you know. And as I used to say to people when I was doing work on 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 the, on the gig economy. You know, if you're riding, if you're delivering pizzas on a gig platform as a student to earn some money to be able to go to the pub, that's not tragic or difficult at all. That's fine. You know, that's a good and flexible way of working. It's not so great if you're the sole earner for a family and the platform you work for has got too many workers and not enough people who want pizzas. So we need to recognize that there is a kind of, I think you can tell a big story, which is that we all want good quality work, but that we need to recognize that our working lives interact with the rest of our lives. So for example, women traditionally have cared much more about flexibility at work because they tend to take on the lion's share of care and responsibilities. So when you say to women, what really matters to you at work, they're more likely to talk about flexibility uh, than men because that reflects the relationship between work and the rest of your life. I mean, it's interesting to me that we spend so much time often in pursuit of choosing ideal romantic and domestic partners and then so little time in terms of designing who we actually work with in terms of colleagues that we spend the majority of our time together. 
uh, with. But you know, one thing that I was really curious about is um, just thinking about some of the implications for these work debates on, on our educational systems. I remember having a really interesting conversation with someone who was a third generation auto worker in Detroit. Um, and in elementary school, they used to have literally an org chart on the wall of um, you know, Ford Motor Company. And anytime someone was bad or naughty, they would sort of point out where they were in the org chart in terms of the lowest ranking position. And they were sort of grooming through this educational system, people to really plug in um, to the automobile sector. And so you know, thinking about that context, so much of our educational system is really designed um, for an output of, of you know, work. And so when we think about the future of work, and what that landscape will look like, how would you go about prioritizing um, you know, the set of skills or experiences that we would need to bring into our educational systems to support that, that vision of work? It's a really important question. And, and, and I think our conversation about this has tended to be very narrow. And it's, it, it's been narrow in two ways. On the one hand, it's kind of assumed that we know what the jobs of the future will be. And our record of knowing what the jobs of the future will be is very poor. And we tend to kind of know what's going to happen in the next two or three years, but underestimate what's going to happen in 10 years. And of course, you know, you're educating people for life. You know, so I mean, I think an example of this is, is the obsession which has existed for giving people coding skills at a time when not that many people will need to code. And anyway, the way technology is developing, it's going to be self-coding to an extent. So if you want to get code something coded soon, you'll just be able to, you know, tell the computer what it is you want a program to do and the computer will produce the program for you so you know that's a classic example of okay there's a gap in the labor market these jobs are well paid let's get everyone to do it well fine but it's not actually a long-term strategy for the whole labor market it's a small intervention and probably time limited intervention as well so that's one way the debate is narrow. the other way the debate is narrow is this instrumentalism this idea, uh, uh, there's a, a phrase that I think Warren Buffett used first, but I've heard it from too many people, which is the more you earn, the more the more you learn, the more you earn, as if all education is there to do is to maximise your your earnings. And 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 I think that 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 you know actually education is needs to be to develop our capacity to be autonomous, rounded human beings. And actually, that is the skill we most need in the labour market is the capacity exactly as you said to, to to think about you know what we're best at what we enjoy what we might enjoy in five years or in 10 years um and, and so that the, that kind of broader set of skills and understandings and also to recognize that we have lots of different skills you know again another problem in education it's all about narrowing down and i understand that to an extent but actually you know one of the get to my age and one of the things you get sad about is is you know, you, you realize there were skills and aptitudes that you had that were never developed and they were never grown, partly because they weren't seen as being relevant to the labor market. And of course, if you're fortunate enough to retire and you're middle class and you're healthy, suddenly you retire, people suddenly develop these new enthusiasms, whether it's, you know, pottery or music or whatever it might be. And you think, oh my goodness, they, they could have discovered those things 20 or 30 years ago, but they've been on a kind of particular track so i think that yes the way our education the, the way we think about work is reflected and reinforced by a certainly a rather narrow view uh, in education but i think that that that's kind of part also of something which i hope we can get into it so which is the, the deep assumptions we have about about what work 
involves and how if we want work to be good we're going to have to go to some of those deep uh, assumptions um, assumptions that haven't been there for long in historical terms they've only been there for for a few hundred years but they are very deep set and, and those are the things that will have to change if we if we do want a future of good work for all it's interesting and i want to want to pick up on that in terms of some of the the myths we have around work um and how we can how we can deprogram those but i'm also just curious as you were writing this book the extent to which you used yourself as a canvas for some of these ideas you know did did this bring up personal reflections for you in terms of how you were programmed around work how your attitude to work you know has changed over the years um i know it's quite an american thing to talk about yourself as, as a microcosm of the system but um yeah just curious you know what what kinds of evolutions you've experienced in in work identity yeah no that's really interesting if i think about so, so in the book, I, I, I explore what we mean by work and try to un untangle the different ideas of work that we have that we often tangle up. And then I, I look at the kind of history of work just to kind of remind people, and it's a short book, so it's a very, very sweeping history, but just to remind people how recent our assumptions about work are and how different they have been and how actually slavery and feudalism are by far and away much bigger longer term phenomena than paid employment even though we you know we have had very if you look at the history of humanity by far and away the longest period is a period when we didn't really work very much at all according to the best history that were the best that we know about prehistoric societies probably people only worked two or three hours a day to get subsistence because you couldn't accumulate so that was the main pattern that's been 99 percent of our existence on earth and then we have thousands of years uh, and tragically we still have modern slavery of course but we have thousands of years where slavery really is the kind of predominant form of labor it's a, a system of systematic oppression of, of oppressive groups over others uh, and then we have this long period of the medieval period in the west anyway but also to a certain extent in other countries like japan we have the kind of feudal system which is a kind of halfway house between slavery and and and, and, and employment and then we move into play so that's i i i, I encourage us to kind of realize that, that we worked in very different ways and therefore it's not difficult to imagine we could work in a, another very different way in the future but then i explore this question of well what is it that would happen what is it that is about work which makes it so difficult for it to be high quality and going back to your question alexa it, I, I i organize this around kind of three c's and i'll start with the third c because that's the one where i'm privileged so the third c is consumerism so what I argue is that part of the reason we don't aspire to good work is because we have come to believe that our identity is much more fully expressed as a consumer than as a producer. Uh, and there Henry Ford is the critical figure really because we associate Henry Ford with Taylorism with the idea of intense control on the conveyor belt. And that's true, the assembly line, that's true. But actually Ford is just as significant because the deal he does with his workers is you will work in a pretty intensive way. You'll be very tightly managed. You won't have much autonomy, but hey, I'm going to pay you twice as much as my competitors pay you. And by the way, my car is so cheap, you can buy it. And so that the Henry Ford moment is absolutely critical because this is the moment at which it's basically forget quality of work, forget autonomy at work, forget craft at work, but don't worry, your paycheck means you can buy a car. And, and that's the deal. That's the big consumer's deal. So in that regard, I've always seen my identity more in 
as a worker as a as in my workplace and as a consumer you know i'm not i'm not i'm not a great shopper i'm not you know i'm, I'm on twitter but i'm not kind of i'm not an instagram type person so that I'm you're not pretty, an influencer <laughs> no i'm not an influencer at all and so i've always found myself much more at work than i do in consumption but i think that for a lot of us a lot of other people the the deal is basically your work's a bit shit but you can buy stuff and and, and that's a, not a great deal i don't think and it's an even worse deal for people who get so but so badly paid they can't buy much stuff so one thing we have to do if we want good work is to is to say actually we find our identity and we should expect to find our identity as much in production as we do in consumption and then the other two c's so they they do go to my own experience so the first one is control that that is still the case that most work is premised on the idea that the deal is I pay you and you do me what you do what you're told to do. And I guess I've experienced being treated by other people in those kind of hierarchical situations and not liking it very much. But I've also, I guess, myself been somebody who's exercised that control and has tried to, I don't think always successfully by any means, but tried to work out how it is I can lead in a way that isn't about control and isn't about denying people autonomy because we know autonomy is one of the biggest things that, that makes people enjoy their work. So I think as a leader, and even more in the modern world, actually, you're constantly trying to get right the, the necessary elements of leadership in terms of strategy and accountability and to an extent performance, but not do that in a way that denies people dignity and autonomy and freedom and self-expression and creativity. And then the final C is competition. and. And now this is a funny one because you might think, well, having spent most, most of my life in the third sector in charities, and social enterprise or whatever, that I would not have to suffer like people in the private sector do this kind of drumbeat, which says, well, all that really matters is competition, you know, maximization of profit, maximization of market share. And as John Kay said, you know, nobody lies on their deathbed saying, at least I, I maximize shareholder value, right? So another reason why we don't enjoy our work is because we're told what matters is competitive success. And actually that doesn't really matter to people. That's not something we're going to lie on our deathbed worrying about. And what I'd say, actually, Alexa, is that even though I've worked in the third sector and public sector, competition has been as big a driver for me. And I have many times caught myself expecting people who work for me to be motivated by my organization being the most successful organization. You have to I've had to stop myself and say, no, I might feel like that because I'm the boss and it all reflects on my ego. But actually, people in the organization, they probably don't go home at night and go, you know, isn't it fantastic that, you know, the RSA is doing 2% better than IPPR or whatever, you know. So uh, if we want people's work to be good, we're going to have to give them a stronger motivation than saying, you know, you're a little bit better than uh, your, your competitor or you've slightly boosted your market share or whatever, because that stuff is the means to an end. It's not an end in itself. It's, it's interesting within the three C's that you sketch out um, that they're, you know, almost a formula for liberation within them, right? So there's a lot of kind of utopian streaks, for example, within the consumerism idea of how we can return to some natural state that never really existed where everyone becomes a producer. I think this has animated a lot of the sort of maker movements and sort of DIY culture um, that was exported, you know, from California specifically that saw, you know, a totally new way of existing and relating where we had decentralized production. So I think in reaction to that kind of Fordist model that you sketch out, um, you know, I think the same decentralization applies to, you know, the control culture of, you know, how we have more um, flatter work structures that aren't based on ideas of, of control 
um, where people accrue responsibility, um, you know, in a more decentralized fashion. And, and certainly, you know, the, the competition element, um, I can relate to as well at a personal level, but I, you know, I think, you know, there's so many shadows there. And so I'm just wondering from, from an emancipatory perspective, you know, this, this pandemic year, we've seen, you know, a concept like UBI, um, universal basic income, which was, was really, um, a fringe kind of movement that the RSA, you know, had gotten behind quite early on that's become so mainstream. Um, and and gotten us to reprogram our myths around this sort of binary between deserving and undeserving poor and to get the state to actually provide for people at a different level. And I know there are experiments happening now across the US in different cities that are that are undertaking um, you know, universal basic income and looking at the, the role that we'll have. So how have, are you seeing uh, in this moment just, you know, more kind of utopian streaks animate the kind of work debate than we've seen previously? Do you think that some of these solutions now that were regarded possibly as a little bit more romantic can actually be embedded um, and accelerated during this, this moment of sort of transition that we're experiencing? Yeah, thanks, Alex. I mean, I think, you know, as the, as the cliche has it, the future uh, is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I, I think that there are, and I look at this in the an ultimate chapter of the book, I look at some of the examples of ways in which work could be organized where it's more likely to lead to a higher quality. And I talk about UBI. I mean, I, it's important to say that I'm not a UBI zealot in the sense I don't think that it's a kind of license to be lazy is a phrase that has been used about UBI. I mean, the UBI that the RSA advocates is modest. And it's actually one of the things it does is strengthen work incentives because it means you keep your UBI when you get a job rather than losing your benefits. Um, I do think, however, it is relevant because the other point about UBI is enabling people to have basic, and it is basic, basic subsistence. So if you're doing a job that's really rotten and really making you miserable, you can leave it and you can think about retraining or starting again or getting another job, which is what you can do when labour markets are tight without in the terror that you're going to lose your benefits and find yourself you know, basically un unable to, to, to subsist. So UBI is relevant in the sense that it makes it a bit easier for people who are having a really terrible time at work to be able to step out and, and, and start again. But to your control point, um, I, I, I cite in the book one of my favourite ever RSA speakers, a guy called Josta Block, um, who, who runs uh, you know, now a, a service that covers a lot of domiciliary care in the Netherlands, and it's entirely without hierarchy as organisation. It's all based on teams of... 12 self-organizing people, uh, nurses, they have a very progressive model, which is they're not there to, to, to serve, they're so much there to, their, there to empower, they empower the individual, they empower the family, the community. Typically a, a Burt's or nurse, when someone comes out of hospital, will knock on the doors of the neighbors and say, look, someone's come out of hospital, would you be able to help them? So mobilizing a different type of work, voluntary work. Uh, but in those teams of 12, what your stars is is very good data. If your team's underperforming, you bring someone in, but you don't bring a manager and you bring a coach and the coach works with the team. So it's highly decentralized. And there are lots of models like that, um, but they're dotted around. I talk about cooperative models. I talk about mutual models because these are again, ways of dealing with this kind of issue of, of, of control and, and also of purpose. And the growth of self-employment you know, it has been a lot to do with people wanting more autonomy at, at work. And although I think there are lots of problems with, you know, gig work, 
in some elements of it, it, it does prefigure a future in which people can have a more creative approach to the portfolio of work that, that they have. Um, so I think there are, there are, you know, there's B corporations, which is an attempt to make all organizations care, you know, be really clear about their purpose and not just their competitive uh, success. So I think there are fragments of this all over the place. But I think what we shouldn't do is underestimate the fact that most organizations are held together by control. Most leaders are strongly animated by competition and most people think work is something you suffer in order to be able to consume. And so we are still in these fundamental senses for most people a long way away from good work. One thing we haven't touched upon um, much is just, you know, some other drivers in the background, you know, thinking about climate crisis, for example, how that has the potential in similar ways, like, like we've seen with the pandemic to be really disruptive to work. Um, and also to change the nature of work in terms of green transition, the green jobs agenda, uh, even, you know, ideas around service corps, you know, what would you anticipate in terms of how climate crisis could be, could be another driver reshaping work? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, there's obviously, there's one set of issues, which is around the kind of changes in the economy and, 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 and green jobs and all of that. But in a sense, I'm more interested in the other side, which is the consumption side, which is, you know, if we're going to get away from the kind of hedonic treadmill, the idea of, you know, having more stuff and more stuff and more stuff, which I think, you know, I, I don't believe in no growth, but I do believe in, in forms of growth which don't involve um, unsustainable consumption. So I think this is going to lead to questions about our lifestyle. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I should be absolutely clear. I absolutely don't believe that the future is a future of no work. And whether or not it's less work, will depend really upon our own aspirations, not on the nature of the economy. And, and it's a tiny thing to say, but I think it's quite a powerful bit of evidence of this. If you want evidence of the fact that we're never going to be short of work, very rich people employ loads of other people. So, you know, if you're rich, you, you know, you employ cleaners and coaches and personal assistants and all of that. So, you know, if, if in a kind of fictional world where the economy was enormous, you'd actually have a terrible shortage of labor because all of us would have lots of money. We'd all want to employ lots of other people to meet our needs. And there wouldn't be. A, so so I just don't believe that, 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 that there's anything inherent which leads to the fact that we're going to have too few jobs. So but I think that the sustainability challenge is really about our lifestyles and our aspirations. Uh, the, 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 and, and, and that goes back to this kind of point about consumption and production and, and lead people to think, well, actually, it's just if the only way I can find my identity is to is to consume more stuff, the world is, is going to burn. So actually, what I need to do is to think about the ways in which I can fulfill myself and grow, which don't involve that. And that's where learning and, and fulfilling work uh, can come in. So I think that's one part of it. I think technology is going to make a difference. But again, as you can hear, I'm, I'm highly resistant to this simplistic idea that technology is going to get rid of all the jobs. It'll get rid of some jobs, but it'll create all sorts of other jobs. But technology will certainly mix things up. It, it, it will lead to flux and change. Um, so I, I don't believe any of the, I, I believe that technology, I believe that changing attitudes, the evidence that more people care more about what, what the World Value Survey calls self-expression. Self I believe changes in values, I believe climate crisis, I believe technology will all destabilize things. I don't think any of them lead to an inexorable conclusion. I think in the end, if we want good work, 
we have to care about good work, both at the level of politics and policy, and secondly, at the level of our own lives. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is sometimes a bit hard, you know, for me to stomach is work used to be built on this formula of mobility. Um, you know, so just in terms of my background, having, you know, um, immigrant associations or someone who came from, you know, my father grew up living on less than a dollar a day, super poor farmer who ended up going to Harvard and was a sort of success story in terms of that mobility factor. And I don't really think that exists anymore. I think the reason that we spoke about at the beginning in terms of why people are breaking up with work is because they don't see the same pathways um, that work allows for, that the system seems more and more rigged in terms of inequality. And so, you know, while there's that systemic inequality at play, um, it feels like more and more people will actually become disenfranchised from our working systems. And so how do we, you know, is, is that sense of mobility, I know it's always sort of functioned as a bit of a myth, especially in American society as this kind of Horatio Alger story, but, you know, how, how key is that to you? How, how important is that argument? Because I think it, it strikes at the heart of, you know, some kind of egalitarian promise um, in terms of our ability, uh, you know, to have this social tapestry, to have, to have you know, a functional middle class, um, to, to have educational systems that support the idea that, you know, we're, we don't have predetermined lives, but that we can shape our own destiny. And it feels like a lot of these questions are, are, you know, this is being called into question by a lot of people who feel disenchanted with what work offers on the other side. Yeah, and that's a great, it's a great question, Alex, and I, I wish you'd asked it while I was writing the book, because I think I would have said more about it in the book. I, I think you're right um, that, that alongside the consumerist story, there is a social mobility story. It, it, like the consumerist story, is instrumental. So what it says is, I don't value work for its intrinsic qualities, but what I value work for is the capacity that it gives me and future generations to be able to move up the ladder. And that has a, that is a very powerful story. And I think maybe by emphasizing consumerism as the main form of instrumentality, I underplay that. I think you're probably right that as much as people have worked in order to shop, they've worked in order to get their, get ahead and to get their, uh, to get their children to get ahead. And as you say, that has broken down. Um, and the main reason that happened, of course, was the growth of the middle class. Um, and so actually, you're right, either neither in Britain or in America, was there much social mobility in terms of going up and coming down? What happened was we massively grew the middle class in British terms. Um, uh, um, and that meant there was just more room at the top. So more people went up and, and that's great. And now the middle class is not growing in the same way. It's still growing, actually, but it's not growing in the same way. And so that means those opportunities have been cut off. So I think I think you're right. There's a wonderful story in Richard Sennett's book, The Corrosion of Character, I think, where he, he finds himself on a plane sitting next to a guy who works for a major consultancy and he's flying around the world. And, you know, he's miserable and he's not really enjoying his work and his marriage isn't going well. He never sees his kids. He's earning an enormous amount. He's very successful, but he's kind of stressed out and unhappy. And He's got what David Graeber famously kind of talk, talked about as a bullshit job, but he doesn't really know why he's doing it. And then Senate discovers, if I remember rightly, that this guy is the father of the guy who was the janitor in the restrooms at the university that Senate used to work. And Senate remembers this guy as the happiest guy you could possibly imagine. There he was sitting in the restroom getting paid dimes when people came in and handed them towels. But he was very, very happy because he was an immigrant and he was earning money and he was going to get his kid into college and he got his kid into college and this is where the kid is 
you know, and I think there's something quite interesting about what that says about motivation. You're quite right. That I think he enjoyed his job, partly because actually it was a relational job because people knew him and he worked there for years and they'd say hello to him and he'd say hello to them. So you might think there's not much dignity in working in a restaurant, but there was for him, but also because he was doing it to achieve something and pass it on to the next generation. And, and I think when that's gone, either, be, either because you are middle class and actually, you know, you, there's nothing more to stretch for or because you're poor and there's no, no realistic poss possibility of breaking through. I think you're right, that is connected to people's sense of disenchantment with work because you're willing to put up with work if you think it's taking you on a journey. Yeah, I remember when I lived in the UK, there was this show that was on television that was a bit odd, but it basically just compared British and Polish workers. So it was a reality show that had them do the same job. Um, and it was interesting that you definitely saw that disenchantment of the British worker and just the hunger and drive of the Polish worker. And I think in some ways, you know, we see that, you know, across the US with, you know, so many immigrants that are, um, to have that motivation that feel like, you know, work can take them somewhere, um, especially escaping from circumstances that were much more dire. And then people that are maybe part of more of, you know, a bourgeoisie class are, are more disconnected from that. And I think this is the, the one area where I feel like my thinking is a little bit more conservative because it feels nostalgic for a time where people had that sense of dignity around, around that job because it felt like it was, um, it was taking their, them somewhere. And as you rightly sketch out, it, it was about creating a, a groundwork for future generations. Yeah, and it's also, Alexa, important because I, I always, I said this at the beginning of our conversation, and we've got to resist the kind of desire to say that everybody should want the same that I want from work or that you want from work. And actually, for some people, there is immense dignity and pride in doing a job which you and I might find a bit boring or even, or, 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 or even demeaning, but for you, it's the way in which you're establishing yourself. It's the way in which you're building opportunities for your children and all that. So it's really important that we don't have the tyranny of good work. I believe in good work for everybody. But I think that work is always a combination of, of, of the intrinsic qualities of the work, but also what's going on in the rest of our life. Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Well, I guess I'll hold any... up the book. I'm holding up yeah. the book. Yeah, OK. <laughs> Buy the book. Um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, we keep... We could keep going, but just really want to thank you, Matthew, uh, for talking to me, sharing some of the thinking in your book. Been a really interesting, wide-ranging conversation at you know how we interrogate work and how it you know operates in our lives, both both individually and as a collective. Uh, so thanks for those who are watching. Uh, please do go out and buy a copy of Matthew's book, How Do We Have to Work? It's part of Thayman Hudson's Big Ideas series, for which Matthew was a general editor. And there are also lots of other great titles in there that you should check out. And that's all from me. Thanks again, Matthew. And thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.